I'm going to take you back to around 2017. Russia wanted to take down certain government operations in the Ukraine. Russia was looking for different ways of how they could cause damage to different operations within the Ukraine. So they decided to infiltrate a software company in the Ukraine, and they were able to put in malware into an update of this particular tax software. So if you were doing business in the Ukraine, you had to have this particular software. When that software was uploaded and patches were implemented across the software, you also took on and downloaded this malware. The impacts were not only in the Ukraine, but across the world. And we saw overnight companies taken offline, impacting global operations across multiple companies, including here in the United States. This was a real wake-up call to companies and to nations of the extent of the damage that could be done by a cyber attack. This is the podcast, This Moment Matters, from Marsh McLennan sharing the expertise of our four businesses, Marsh, Guy Carpenter, Mercer, and Oliver Wyman. I'm Eric Gustafson. Today's guest, Stephen Vigna, served as chief counsel for Homeland Security under Delaware Senator Tom Carper. This was back in 2011 when he worked on a cybersecurity framework, a set of best practices for organizations to avoid getting compromised by online criminals. He's from Edinburgh, Texas, which is next to the U.S.-Mexico border. He went to law school at Texas A&M and right out of school was working on Capitol Hill. It's an interesting path from there to Marsh, where he's now a senior vice president in our cyber practice. In my discussion with him, we started at the ground level, one common way that hackers actually break into organizations. When you think about that a simple phishing attack or some type of email social engineering can literally cost your company hundreds of millions of dollars because of a ransomware event. I work in a a cyber claims now. I see this every day. Organizations through some type of social engineering event clicked on a link and within minutes, millions of dollars out the door spent on not only just the ransom itself, but on remediation on forensics, on legal expense, on data recovery, on reputational damage, and then not to mention even potential litigation and all those third-party costs, regulators asking questions. So there's so much writing on this that I think people forget that they have a responsibility to improve their awareness about cybersecurity and working with their organization as well as they are part of the solution to address this risk. I mean, that's a Great point. And it is, frankly, easy to forget each of us has that responsibility. I want to circle back to the story we started the podcast with on the break in in Ukraine. I mean, this was a real wake up call to companies and to nations about their vulnerabilities, but it was also a bit of a wake up call for folks that wanted to engage in criminal behavior. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. Um, I think uh, we're starting to see this blurring of the lines between nation state activity and, and criminal actors, sometimes working at the behest of a nation state, sometimes working just in tandem 
or at the actual direction, mm-hmm. but uh, if anything, at the acquiescence or the blind eye of a nation state. But the end result is the same in that there is a constant and persistent and severe threat against our businesses and, and other organizations every day, every minute. One of the things um, that has come to light recently is the need for collaboration between governments and the private sector. It's a little bit of a challenge because there has been a lingering tension between regulators and cyber um, uh, hacks, right? Where it's almost a blame the victim mentality. But one of the ways that we can improve resilience is greater collaboration. As someone who worked in government, how do you see the collaboration improving? What should businesses be doing? What should governments be doing to work together more seamlessly? No, that's that's a great question. There's this kind of inherent tension at times, or at least a perceived inherent tension between government and the industry, as oftentimes as regulators or as uh, enforcement actions that may be burdensome. Companies are, are sometimes reluctant to cooperate and collaborate with the government. But I think what we're seeing here with the onslaught of ransomware attacks is a necessity that is needed for cooperation and collaboration and coordination across industry, with government, with nonprofits, kind of an all of the above approach to tackling this problem. Because we're dealing with nation states, with sophisticated criminal organizations that may have the backing of a nation state. And so there's a multi-pronged approach. And part of that is industry coming together, working with each other, and working with the government, sharing best practices, sharing threat information, and sharing other data that's necessary to kind of get a real understanding of the severity and the uh, totality of the events so we can formulate better comprehensive plans to do something about it. So if I'm a company, right, and I have exposure, or if I have been hacked, Do you know how to advise the company to engage the government? Like what sorts of things should they share? Is there an 800 number? You know, that sort of thing. (laughs) Well, there's several probably uh, ways to have contact with the government. Uh, I mean, first, I think if you're a regulated industry, you might have that relationship with your regulator. And they, uh, you know, the Department of Energy is a great example where they have a whole cybersecurity office. And so they have... uh, different operations set for their industry. Financial sector is another area where they have particular industry resources that maybe they even sit together in the information sharing and analysis center and ISAC. CISA, the Department of Homeland Security, is kind of the quarterback and the kind of the uh, coordinator for industry cooperation, and they can provide valuable resources as well. But usually in the event of an actual attack, one of the first points of contact are often the FBI local field office or even the Secret Service local field office as well. So Stephen, your background working on Capitol Hill in a variety of capacities at the Congressional Research Service, on a committee, on the House side, and ultimately on the Senate side, really is a unique preparation for um, your work at Marsh. Now, so much of the cybersecurity, you know, landscape is still kind of coming together, the ways that governments work with other governments, the ways that businesses work with government. What can you tell us about your experience in public policy and in in the government as to how we should be thinking about enhancing those partnerships? 
Sure. Um, I've worked in Congress for nearly 15 years. First, as you mentioned, the Congressional Research Service, which is like a think tank for Congress. And there you really get to take a deep dive into issues and understand litigation that may impact uh, legislation and kind of you know how members are approaching issues. And one of the things about CRS, it's nonpartisan. So you're really trying to just cut right through the left and the right and kind of tell it how it is down the middle. You know, on the House side, I really got an understanding of a variety of issues, working with state and locals, getting those perspectives, working on counterterrorism issues and border security issues. And then, of course, in the Senate, we're really focused on cybersecurity and understanding uh, working with industry, privacy groups, all the different constituencies that have an interest in these issues including law enforcement and national security perspectives. Yeah, all the stakeholders. Uh, And so really putting those interests together is how you move a piece of legislation. You know, we worked day and night to pass several bills, including an information sharing bill that provided, you know, certain liability protections for industry who shared cyber threat indicators. And that's one of the tools in the toolbox right now for CISA and, and other agencies working with industry. But I think working on Capitol Hill really helps uh, you understand kind of the different perspectives and the different dynamics that are behind cyber legislation, cyber policy, and just how challenging it is to bring the parties together to find a bill that will eventually pass and become law. And then that was one of the issues that I was dealing with in particular around 2014, 2015, when we were trying to pass legislation that created a more of a regulatory framework for cybersecurity. And those discussions are ongoing right now. But those discussions back in 2014, 2015, you know, we were not successful in passing that regulatory bill. And what came out of that was the cybersecurity NIST framework put forward by the Obama administration. And that framework was voluntary guidance. The framework was drafted by the NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technologies, and it was put together with the input of industry. And so they had a seat at the table developing these voluntary standards. So the question became, well, how do we incentivize companies to adopt these voluntary uh, guidance and standards? And one of the thoughts was, well, maybe insurance and cyber insurance can play a role in that. And so my boss at the time wanted to learn more about that issue. And so that's where um, I really started uh, doing a deeper dive on cyber insurance and cyber risk management. And that ultimately led me to Marsh. I'm interested in insurance for many reasons, but I think it has this unique social uh, mission, right? Where the insured party the doesn't want to, if, if you have auto insurance, it doesn't mean you want to have a car crash, right? Um, the manufacturers of the cars are trying to do things to make them safer. And clearly insurance carriers don't want to see you have a car crash either. So everybody's incentives are aligned in order to have safer vehicles, right? A better experience driving. And I think you can take that model and apply it to how society prepares for earthquakes, hurricanes, and yes, cybersecurity. Can you talk to us a little bit about what some of the outcomes have been of the framework, ways in which working with companies like Marsh have improved their cyber hygiene? Sure. So I I think for leading companies, it's those that have embrace cybersecurity as a business enabler. Companies that have embraced that kind of strategy and see cyber as really a market differentiator, a place where they can um, really separate themselves from their peers, I think those are companies that are set up for success in, in the long run. And what we see is with the NIST framework, 
companies that are using the framework. And if you take a step back, it encompasses the life cycle of a cyber event. We're talking about taking measures to identify, protect, detect, respond, and ultimately recover from an event. And so, you know, it, it really sets some guidelines for companies using best practices that they can measure themselves and say, okay, what's our target? Where do we want to be? And where are we now? So then we can dedicate resources and reprioritize as needed, given uh, the impacts of the day and the threats of the day. And so they can really make some decisions, some risk management decisions to better align their resources with their risk. And so I, I think the NIST framework has really helped companies talk a common language. It's helped them identify gaps and measure priorities. And it's helped them improve their cyber hygiene all around because now they have a whole set of uh, best practices at their disposal that they can um, you know, choose from. Man has a lot changed in just a short period of time in, in the online world. Let's talk about the advent of the ransomware I don't know, period or, or time. Can you maybe give us a little bit of a sense, like what is ransomware? And then talk to us about how it came to be that it is now kind of everywhere on the front page of magazines and newspapers. Sure. So ransomware is a type of malware that's used by, in this case, particularly criminal organizations, but nation states as well, that encrypts your data. And then to get a decryption key, you have to pay a ransom or an extortion. In a lot of cases now, we're seeing what we call kind of a double ransom in that the hackers not only encrypt your data, but they also steal it too. And so you're being extorted for the decryption key as well as potentially a release of your data. Mm -hmm. So ransomware is, is really, it's a type of malware has evolved over time to the point where now it's almost a, a service that bad guys can find uh, in, in the dark web and are able to, um, you know, really turn on very quickly and inflict damage across the world. And really, they're kind of shooting almost like a shotgun, trying to see whatever they hit. And then from there, they're looking for open doors, basically, across organizations. And when they find one, then they infiltrate the company. And that's when they start poking around. They might uh, find the data that's, um, you know, the crown jewels, so to speak. And they take that data. And then that's when they uh, launch the ransomware and actually encrypt your files and say, oh, by the way, uh, we have your data here and we're going to release it to the general public if you don't pay us millions and millions of dollars. And we have seen, you know, cyber attackers take control of physical assets or disable their use. It's not just data, right? It's the capacity for systems to operate. Unfortunately, no system is perfect, right? you're not going to keep every criminal out. Is there a way that companies can lower their exposure um, to something that might be inevitable for them? Right. You mentioned the physical part of it. And I think that is the worry for particularly government officials, but obviously for communities and for organizations and companies that run these utilities. Um, the threat of moving over from the kind of the corporate network to the actual operational technology and being able to manipulate industrial control systems in a way that might impact a community. And we've seen examples in a, a water treatment plant in Florida. Uh, you know, there was uh, examples of about a, a dam in, in New York and other types of um, critical infrastructure here in the United States. Uh, you know, at least yeah. it, it appeared that... Um, uh, some type of outside organization or outside entity got into the control systems and was able to manipulate some of the terminals. 
Luckily, nothing came of those issues and they were you know, quickly identified and remediated. Again, it's another wake-up call that it's not only talking about corporate IT networks, but we're talking about industrial control systems. And in many ways, those industrial control systems, their legacy, they've been around for you know, 20, 30 years. Uh, updating and, and patching those systems is more challenging. The vulnerabilities are there. And so I think that is a, a key issue that I know, again, government, Right, industry and others are are very concerned about. So both in terms of data and physical assets, Stephen, how should companies prepare or anticipate attacks that could affect not only their data, but also physical systems? Well, every company is different. Again, it's part of their risk management strategy. They need to assess their people, the process, and their technology. And they need to identify where there might be some vulnerabilities and where they can strengthen and improve. In many ways, um, again, I'm going back to that NIST framework. There's a variety of best practices there. But just for example, right now when we're talking about ransomware, I know from an insurance perspective, the insurers, they want to see multi-factor authentication throughout the organization, particularly for administrative privileges. They want to see access management and better access management and control tools available. They want to see endpoint detection monitoring. They want to see an incident response plan, not only that you have one, but that you've tested it. They want to see a strong vendor management program, a patch management program as well. So there, there's a variety of different tools and, and, and techniques out there that um, organizations are doing, and they should probably be doing more of. Uh, mm-hmm. Backups and, and recovery is also a major issue right now, particularly with ransomware, is what, one of the methods of uh, best practice to make sure you, uh, if you are a victim of a ransomware event, is to be able to restore your systems from uh, your backup uh, recovery uh, data and systems. A lot of organizations, they, they may not test that backup, or they may think it's airtight, but it's really not. I know from an insurance perspective, they're definitely asking questions about, well, what is your backup strategy? Mm-hmm. How often is it completely offline? How often do you um, test it? Basically, they want to know if you take a punch, how fast can you get back up? Right, right. And so insurance companies are and other risk advisors are sort of driving the progress to some degree. W- what maybe is in the future? What kinds yep. of tactics might be in the offing, apart from multi-factor authorization, as well as air-gapped backups and things of that nature? You know, I think we're seeing a, a real uh, emphasis on cyber threat intelligence, really help understanding what you're up against and the threats that are coming in so you can make better informed decisions to move um, and be flexible for those threats that are coming in. Another area of emphasis that I think organizations, you'll see a lot more efforts behind is training and awareness. Um, I, I think the people oftentimes they say are, are a weak link. And, and so I think that's why you see a lot of emphasis on training and awareness, whether it's phishing testing or um, just uh, you know general uh, awareness and, and understanding the threats that are coming in. Social engineering of um, types of threats are are very real, and they're often the, you know one of the major ways that ransomware malware is inserted into a network, because the bad guys have become sophisticated enough where they understand what you might click on, and so they'll craft a message that looks so real that uh, you know you on, on a long day and may just click on it, and then from there um, the, the hackers are able to get in. Remember. The hackers only need to be right one time. 
organizations have to be right all the time. And so they're playing those odds. Awareness and training is going to be a key factor of moving forward. Definitely is. I'm paranoid every time I get an email from something I don't expect. I just sort of look at it. I study the bottom of the signature block of whoever sent it. If I don't know the person and I don't, uh, I'm not familiar with the service, I'm not clicking on the link. So it'll be interesting to see how marketing evolves given the general paranoia that has come around. Well, I would say you asked earlier about some kind of evolving threats and what's kind of on the horizon and the question about how marketing might evolve. Yeah. You know, right now we're seeing this evolution of deep fakes and misinformation, and we're seeing it really in the political sphere and um, celebrities. And it's oftentimes, you know, you put the head on a, a body of someone else and pretend like they're saying something. But this technology is getting, you know, backed by artificial intelligence. AI is getting very, very real. And we are seeing that in the criminal world and organized crime, where they're able to manipulate, of course, letters mm -hmm. and uh, signatures uh, and other corporate data, as well as now uh, voices and, of course, images. And so they're really able to fabricate a whole story out of thin air just to get you to click on a link to authorize a payment to move money around that of course is not you it's all it's fraudulent but um, this is what the hackers are doing to somehow make money and is that something that multi-factor authentication can defeat or where does that I would imagine if you're a if you're a hacker right you're trying to come up with a new technology that isn't going to be easily blocked or defeated by MFA or something that is training, you know, that is already in kind of the training ethos of a, a company or a carrier that might require it. You know, how might these interesting innovations that the hackers are coming up with drive new training technologies, new um, forms of security? What are your thoughts about that? You know, when you, when you think about cyber threats, you know, I think the, one of the kind of frameworks is looking at it through the impacts it will have on the confidentiality, the integrity, and the availability of your data. Confidentiality, of course, is, um, you know, we, we've seen those types of threats for a long time related to, um, you know, data breaches and the actual exploitation of important information. The availability of data, we're seeing that right now with the ransomware events, they're um, locking up systems and preventing you uh, from carrying out your day-to-day -day activities. What we haven't seen a lot of is the tax on integrity. I do think this is uh, you know, something that we have to watch out for as companies and organizations and as a nation too, because I, I think this is where we'll see an evolution in the different types of malware, putting into question the integrity of the data that's in front of us. From a corporation, maybe it's their 10K and other annual reports. If hackers are able to manipulate that data and then maybe extort you by just you know threatening that they had done a certain manipulation of the data, I mean that could be a major, a major risk and consequence for an organization. So I think the integrity issue is one to watch for, and, and I think that you know there's some companies out there that try to help bring some uh, authenticity and, and they compare the pictures and they're able to basically validate whether it is authentic or not. So I really think uh, we'll be able to address those types of threats. Stephen Vigna is a senior vice president of Marsh's cyber practice and an adjunct professor at American University. If you want to learn more about Marsh McLennan's work to enhance cyber resilience, visit marshmclennan.com. This Moment Matters is produced by Marsh McLennan with Connected Social Media. 
I'm Eric Gustafson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.